Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. My guest today is Ollie Sanders, and Ollie has brought together two of his personal passions for alpine mountaineering and kayaking and combined those together to create some incredible experiences. Ollie's highly accomplished at both disciplines. He's been nominated for alpinism's highest achievement, the PLA d'Or, and nominated for honors from the Arctic Club as well. And he has some pretty interesting non-sporting history involving supersonic travel, and we'll get into that as well. Before we get to the interview, just a quick reminder about our one-year anniversary contest. Listen close for this episode's question and get your answer to me for a chance to win $100 to spend on level six gear of your choice and some sweet shirts and hats and hoodies from our friends at Werner Paddles and P&H Custom Sea Kayaks. So enjoy today's episode with Ollie Sanders. Hello, Ollie. Thank you for joining me today. Hello, John. Yeah. So you've got quite the CV, um, both equally at home in the mountains and on the water, and you've been able to truly marry both of your passions for alpinism and paddlers or paddling. So can you give our listeners a little history on yourself? Yeah, I suppose I started off as a climber. People always want to put you in boxes, don't they? Where, where I live up in uh, Snowdonia in North Wales, it's sort of a great playground for everything, really. I tended to get dragged down rivers by climbing buddies when it was raining and we couldn't go climbing and they were equally useless as I was but in the end we I suppose after we survived the amount of rivers we sort of actually got a few skills so I did a lot of white water paddling as well as the mountaineering and within that time I sort of got some qualifications I suppose in England we have a few problems with access and stuff like that so but we're right next to the coast so the sea was always there without having to worry about irate anglers losing their uh, losing their marbles with us when we paddle down try to paddle down rivers when it was raining so uh, I just started getting on the sea really and bought my first sea kayak an Ala Sakuta um, which is actually feel, feels like sitting on a razor blade actually <laughs> after you've been on a um, on a uh, sort of flat bottom white water boat and then just decided to uh, sort of combine this sort of sea kayaking with the mountaineering um, I realised actually that the coast we had around here because of the tide races is as exciting as rivers. Some of my friends think sea kayaking is boring and dangerous because not a lot happens. When it does happen, it happens very, very quickly. So I sort of, I suppose in the end of the day, I got a bit of imagination and realised uh, actually I wasn't really, um, my reflexes weren't as good for, for whitewater paddling anymore. And I sort of got more into uh, the sea kayaking and I got my sort of qualifications in coaching and teaching that and then I just thought they're both mountaineering and sea kayaking are both journeys where you have to make good decisions on the hoof in environments that are ever changing and I so I started to think about how I might combine the two and that's really how I suppose I started doing some of the expeditions that combine both sea kayaking and climbing. Excellent. I'm certain you've got hours of stories you could tell about, about both areas, both climbing and paddling, but we're here today to talk a little bit about Liverpool land. Uh, so if you would pl- please tell us a little backstory on that expedition, and let's start with what and where is Liverpool land? I'm thinking it's probably not where most of our listeners are going to think, and, uh, and what about it attracted you? Yeah, Liverpool land is pretty high up on the northeast coast of Greenland. There's one settlement up there, which is in Etokotoma, or the, the mouth of Scoresbyson, which is probably the biggest fjord system in the world. And it's just on the edge of the National Park. 
which is quite useful because if you go in the national park, it becomes a bit more complicated in terms of, of backup and insurance and all that, all that sort of thing. And I've been there before. I did a trip down into uh, Scoresby and um, I think a couple of years previously and did some climbing down there and paddle. Uh, it sort of struck me as an amazing place. And so I decided to go back there. But this time, rather than stay in the fjord system, is to try and go on the open ocean and go north. So... On the east coast, there's sort of one settlement which is down at Maslak, and there's about, I think it's probably about 2,000 kilometres before you get up to Itokotormat. And then after that, after you leave Itokotormat, which is only a population of about three or 400 people, there's nothing really north except the National Park. The only, there's, there's a few research stations. So the only people that really go into there are the, uh, the Danish Army's Sirius Patrol, which patrol that area. I decided to go back there. And I, because I'd had the boats that were left there from the previous trip, so the logistics of getting boats out there was already sorted, and I managed to get some funding through the Arctic Club. And then all I had to do was find a playmate. I had, we had a family friend who had I gone through some of the mountaineering qualifications, and he was a paddler, so I didn't give him much choice really, because um, the person I originally wanted to go with backed out. So I literally met. Simon, we had a day out with him and his kids, and I said, look, I've got this trip, it's all paid for, do you want to come? But you've got to let me know, like, tomorrow, because I've got to basically get the tickets before they go out, and it's going to be in about two months' time, or six six weeks' time. So he, um, he had to go and ask his wife. Anyway, she gave him the thumbs up, and he was on board. So we didn't really get a lot of time to go and train for it, really. I suppose we were both paddling. So anyway, we uh, I remember picking him up from his house at 6 o'clock in the morning, and he just had a, a new baby son, and then we, we headed off. And uh, we ended up eventually getting to Itoka Tormet via Copenhagen and about two or three other flights, because it's quite, the logistics in Greenland, um, you have to take lots of small aircraft once you once you arrive at one of the main airports. So eventually we got into there, found the boats, told the out, well the outfitter, who was an ex-serious patrol guy, that we were going to go out onto the open ocean and he said nobody does that um you know hopefully we'll see you and so that was it so we packed up and we just went out out of the fjord and started going north so now i suppose we're exposed to you know the open ocean really which which um we hadn't been on the previous trip and off off we went so the idea was to you know to explore the area to try and climb new route alpine routes and to just to generally get as far as we could so I think it was the second or third night we went up there. We ended up um, not going quite as far as we thought we wanted to. I suppose just because we were like, you know, just getting into the whole trip. So we pulled into this sort of valley-type bay area, this sort of pebbly beach, and settled down. And basically, it kicked off. A storm, big storm kicked off. And, uh, we, you know, we, we couldn't get off the beach. We pulled our boats up. Our tent was getting flattened because it was basically howling down this valley. So we managed to move our tent just around the corner um, to a sort of little rock buffer. It was actually pretty sheltered. So anyway, we're um, we're sleeping away. It's during the day. We're just waiting for sort of the wind to die down. And um, uh, we've got headphones on. We're in the tent. And um, I hear a noise and I wake up. I look down at my feet. And at that point, polar bears have ripped through the front of the tent. Um, and uh, we're shoving his, his head into the, uh, the porch area. I sort, of, I sort of woke Simon up, you know, like this is all, some of these things are in slow motion. I sort of noticed him, I think, I think we've got a problem. And he sort of, anyway, so I got the gun. We had a pump action shotgun, banged it on the nose, 
and use some expletive and it sort of it went off so that was it so we we're awake then anyway so <laughs> we're sort of a bit more awake now anyway so we sort of went back dozing but this time we put the empty we had a bottle of whiskey we always take one bottle of whiskey with us which we'd also really consumed at this point so we dragged the boats up next to the tent anyway i shoved the empty whiskey bottle on onto the sea kayaks and we went back to sleep about an hour later i heard the whiskey bottle go dink so i shoved my head out of the tent and there was that polar bear again there's a mother with two cubs sort of they look like they've been caught in the act. They look like very guilty still school children. So at this point, I sort of shoved my head out and they sort of went away. And then the, the final thing is they came back again. At this point, they ripped the hatch cover off the back of the boat and they, she ran off with it, with the bear. With that. But this time, they were obviously a bit more reluctant, a bit more reluctant to go. They sort of got a bit more courage up. They realised we probably weren't going to do much to them. So I ended up, I ended up, we both ended up running after the polar bears trying to cross this stream to get to the bears who had the hatch cover in its mouth because it was a big hatch cover so we thought we can't do without this and I remember chasing the bear and then and I looked at Simon and he looked at me and he said to me I thought you had the gun and I said to him I thought you had the gun so I said to him well look well, you amuse it and I'll go back and get the gun he went you're the team leader you amuse it I'll go back and get the gun so I sort of amused it by throwing a few stones in around at it and then eventually he came back with a gun and the thing dropped dropped it and then um, it went away. So the next, so we were just up all night then. And then luckily the next day it all sort of died down and we were out of there. So we thought, oh, you know, hopefully if we go out to these islands on the trip, we'll get away from the bears. Anyway, we carried on with the trip, amazing scenery. We did some sort of uh, new climbs. It was all pretty scary climbing over, I remember. It was also quite loose rock and we'd forgotten our crampons and we ended up some horrendous descent into a gully and in our shiny rock boots and upsetting off snow bollards and all that sort of thing. Trying to get north, but we only get blocked blocked by sea ice. So we ended up at a place called Cape Hove, which is our sort of furthest north. And we ended up in this hut, this was a research hut that was used to look around. They went in there to look for, to basically sort of research the little orcs that used to nest there. They used to nest in the rocks. And the only predator they had was the Arctic foxes they used to, you know, find out where they were and, and eat them. We're on this island and we find a little, we stay in this, this research yard. Now as we walk in, it says, welcome to the land of pleasure and, and luxury. And I was going, this is a bit weird. <laughs> so we had, a, we had a couple of days there. I did some more climbing and then eventually we ended up to uh, Raffles Island. All there was was some old little hut that was all sort of, door was off. And so we put the tent up and then uh, I went off to collect firewood. So I'm off collecting firewood. Simon's back making a brew, and I'm, and I, and I'm, I'm probably about 500 metres from the camp, and I've got my arm, arms full of wood, and something suddenly swims out of the water, and I think, what's going on here? And then I realised, actually, we've got polar bears can swim quite a long way, so it's another male polar bear this time, and they're the ones you really got to watch for. It gets out the water, and it's coming directly to me, and I'm thinking, well, uh, what's I going to do about this, I suppose? Uh, I and you have don't have the gun. Didn't have you... the gun. <laughs> so I sort of just I got actually I, I remember taking a few photos because I thought well he's probably outrun me so I could throw some wood at it but I'll take a few photos anyway and then he must have got close enough and this is like three weeks into the trip now he must have got close enough where he could smell me and I must have smelled really bad I probably did smell really bad actually because it looked like somebody had swung a, a wet mackerel and slapped him around the chops because <laughs> he suddenly stopped staggered Got another sniff and then legged it off and ran back into the sea and swam off, which was which was quite fortunate, really. 
So at that point, I said, Simon, the bears can get out everywhere. So wherever we go, we're going to go around in pairs. And then I suppose the final bit of the trip, which made it, because we, we were on our own, really. We didn't really have a, we had an EPUB, but we didn't have any form of sat phone. I don't really, you know, don't really take sat phones very often, to be honest. So, so we're out. We didn't see anybody, obviously, for about a month. And then we just got this, I just got this feeling the weather was changing. And I said to Simon, I think we're going to have to get back because if we get stranded out here on this coast, then the only way to get back into uh, Itoka Torma is we're going to have to basically walk, you know, across the mountain ranges to get back into Itoka Torma. And then we're going to have to leave all the, it could just take enough to, to sort of, we can survive. And I think it'd probably take three or four days to walk back, maybe more. So I said, I just get a feel that the weather's changing. And I think sometimes when you don't have access to weather reports, and you don't have access to, you know, to, to, to sat um, synoptic charts and all that sort of thing. You can't make a phone call because you haven't got anything. You just tend to be a little bit more in tune with the environment. And I just noticed there was a, a change in the swell and a change in the sort of cloud, general cloud formation. So basically, we did like a three-day journey back into Scoresbyson in one big hit. We just kept going. And as we kept going, the sea got started getting bigger and bigger. I remember we just managed to get into the mouth of the Scoresbyson, you know, we're almost like surfing fairly big waves. And we got into the fjord and set up camp and then it just went ballistic. It just snowed and snowed and snowed. And we, but luckily from there, we only had a short half an hour paddle back into the village. And uh, we sort of got away with it really. That trip always sticks in my mind as being, it wasn't supposed to be as committing as it ended up, but I just felt at the end of the I said to him, at the end of the trip, I said, that was pretty committed, wasn't it? And he went, yeah, I think so. I remember dropping him off at the end of the trip, and he sort of, I dropped him back off at six o'clock in, in the morning, back to his house, after having picked him up at six o'clock in the morning. And I rang him about 10, I said, how is it? He says, it feels like I've never been away. I'm chipping off, I'm chipping off, rendering off the chimney stack, and the kids are running around like lunatics. He said, it seems like a dream. So yeah, so that was a really special trip for me, actually. That sounds it. So the uh, the first encounter with polar bears um, is that early on. Yeah, day three. Day three. Okay. Mm. So so you had to know at that point if this is day three, what else is going to happen uh, from then on? And that's interesting. Um, now, so you're and you're chasing the polar bears. Most people are trying to get away from them, yet you're chasing the polar bears. Well, yeah, because we didn't have a spare <laughs> a spare big hatch cover, so it was, and we figured uh, if if we didn't get between her and the cubs then we'd be all right. So we just, we just, I mean, we weren't running full speed, but we were making a lot of noise, banging stuff and, and following them. Um, because we, and eventually we got, she did drop the hatch cover. Uh, and then we had to repair it with some glue. So we got that big hatch cover back because I don't, the state of the sea, I think it would have been really awkward without that hatch cover. It probably would have been. So your launch point was a Tuckatarma, you said? Yeah. Okay. So now, how did you plan the route? How did you determine that that was going to be your launch point? And then how did you plan uh, the rest of the route along the way? <laughs> uh, it was probably off the, off the cuff, John, to be honest. It was just <laughs> like, I want to go up north. That's the point where the boats are. So I can pick the boats up there. We ship the barrels of food to there and a bit of kit, camping kit and climbing kit. So we ship two barrels. So it all arrived. And then I just said, let's just go out. Let's just go north and see how far we can get and see what we can do. You know, I hadn't done a lot more research than that, really. Um, okay. Just the fact that the map, it looked like there was some climbing objectives. And, and the thing with with that area, you never really, never really know what you're going to get. You know, I've had some, some rock that's been really good. And then some areas, it just feels really scary and dangerous. So, and it was, it wasn't very good rock on that coast. 
How, and how long were you out on that trip? Uh, well, I think the total we were there for four, f- five weeks. And I think we had 27 paddling, yeah, 27 days in the boat. Just okay. about, it's, it's, well, any more than that, I can't actually fit enough food in and all the climbing gear and the and the axes and the crampons and all the tented gear. It's about as much as I can get in is about 27 days worth of, of gear. And that's uh, that's actually what I was thinking is you're out for 27 days. Did you cache food along the way or did you carry all the food and all the paddling gear with you? No, it was all, it was all of those, all in the boats, actually. I mean, obviously water wasn't an issue because we could get water. So we only used to carry water enough for a day or a day and a half. But everything else was rammed in. So it was like, you no know, cockpit was, you know, really between your legs is absolutely rammed and then, the gun was on the back deck and there was quite a lot of stuff on the deck which which gradually but we didn't stash any we took it all with us okay yeah i mean unlike most paddling expeditions you're climbing as well so that climbing gear is is not light and not necessarily doesn't compact down very tight um, so it's a lot to manage yeah 255 60 meter ropes and all the rack and everything um i mean we're not big wall climbing or anything like that we're alpine climbing so you know we're it's a alpine rack and you know, rock boots, harness, helmet, and and two ropes. So it's it, it, it does go in, but it's tight fit. So now, how did you determine the uh, climbing objectives? Did you have particular objectives in mind when you started the trip? No, with with, with all these trips, I've basically just <laughs> got another look, really. So what we normally do, we paddle around, and then if we see what we think might be a nice objective, then we'll uh, we'll pull up and we'll camp there for a couple of days. You know, it might be a five, six pitch route, it might be a 10 pitch route. Sometimes there's a couple of crags in the same area. So we just see what we've got. And sometimes we find it's really good climbing. Sometimes we find when we get on it, it's actually pretty loose and dangerous. So we will probably get back in the boats and go and find somewhere else. It's just basic climbing on stuff we come across as we're, as we're doing a journey. Okay. You see something that has a, a beautiful line to it and decide that's what you want to go for. Yeah. I mean, on the maps, the maps are fairly... Basically, you get enough idea that, you know, there's some steep faces in an area. Until you actually get there and get on it, you don't really know because there's not been a lot of climbing done on that coast, I know. So it's all going to be first ascents, really. So you never really know what you're going to come across. So now you've done a lot of work in Greenland. So what is it that keeps calling you back? I think it's because once you get there, once you get out of the communities, you know, it's still, it's proper wilderness. You've got 24 hours of daylight, which means it's great, which means even I can't get benighted when I go climbing. You know, it just means you've got time. You've got time to, you know, when you're on a trip, you know, often on other trips, you know, you know it's going to get dark at certain times, so you're always in a bit of a rush to find a campsite. With Greenland, you know, you just, you just, it's just, you just chill out. You sort of, you can get up a bit late, start a bit later, paddle into the evening. You know, you can stop off at places and you know you can climb 24 hours. I mean, it might just, get slightly dim on the horizon but you can just keep climbing so if you've got a big route you can climb for 24 hours you know whatever you need to do so and you don't really see anybody and I think that whole thing just allows you to sort of sort of recharge your batteries get to know the people you're with sit around campfires telling stories which we sort of don't do anymore and um, just get away from it all really we don't carry you know we leave everything behind really I mean we'll carry an EPIRB and that's about it so there's no mobile signal so we just with our own company and it tends to just mean you just concentrate on the simple things don't you you've got to drink you've got to stay warm and you've got to have some food and then the rest of it is just a good time having an adventure with some friends 
Beautiful. So what's the coast like up there? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a constant, isn't it? I mean, so depending on where, where you go, each each side is slightly different. Some, like the northeast, is a big fjord system with rugged coastline. The northwest is, you know, interspersed with loads of island. Down south, it, Cape Farewell is steep, steep cliffs committing, windy. <laughs> um, so it depends what you want, really. But, um, I mean, I think wherever you go, you wouldn't be disappointed. If you trip over the camp and drop the camera and go off accidentally, you're still going to get a good shot. <laughs> so the name Liverpool Land, um, do you know how it got its name? Um, I think, uh, I, this might be wrong, but I think uh, it was recently, the place was was uh, discovered by Captain Scoresby, named Scoresby, and I assume it was to do with some English sailors and English skippers and English connection there and normally you know whoever's explored that area first calls it whatever they want so and there must be a UK connection there so I'm not but I'm not 100% sure okay I think it's probably a reasonable assumption yeah <laughs> so you mentioned Cape Farewell tell us you you also done an expedition to Cape Farewell tell us a little bit about that one yeah well Cape Farewell is the windiest region in the world just because where it is I think I think we just I'd, I'd always wanted to go down to that area and so I managed to uh, get some funding again for that, and uh, we ended up going down. But we ended up borrowing some boats off some some friends of ours who'd been there before, and unfortunately they weren't very big. So it was a, it was a game we were climbing, and so the boats we, we just never thought we were going to get the gear in. But we ended up managing to get it in, but it was just hanging off the deck. So in that case, that trip we did stash stuff just to clear the boats. Getting camp around Cape Farewell was uh, quite a challenge actually because it's obviously right at the far tip and it's it's sort of exposed to you know tidal currents and wind and we ended up going for it and then getting basically stormed and having to make a sort of sort of rock, rocky rocky landings and getting stranded in between um, Cape Christiansen and Cape Farewell. Eventually we managed to sort of get a little weather window and managed to get around Cape Farewell. Once we got around that, that was the sort of crux of the trip, uh, and then we ended up back in the fjord system, yeah. And then, then the climbing was really good. We did loads of really good climbing, and then I think right at the end we got called out as game. We sort of ended up not far back from Nanortalak. We sort of ended up camping, at, and then we, we were camped in this bay, and I was looking out, and the sea looked like it was all right, been a bit of a storm, and we ended up doing this last section. It was a really exposed coastline, and it just kicked off. And we were completely exposed to this sort of icebergs come sheer cliffs. And I remember, well, the, the guy I was with was quite young, and he was, I think he probably said he had like a, a bit of a more lack of imagination, I do. And I just remember the, these are the biggest seas I've been in. If, we, if anybody blows it here, we've, you know, we're, we've had it really because um, we're too far for VHF to work, you know, and, uh, you know, there's no way we could be rescuing each other here. And when you so, say biggest seas, uh, give us an idea of, of what we're talking about. <laughs> um, you know, where you when the, the swell is so big that you don't actually see the other person for large quantities of time because <laughs> you're in big troughs and, and occasionally you'll catch a glimpse of somebody right at the top of a load of crest of waves. Uh, and because it was being squeezed between the icebergs as well, it was just refracting off that and then... So you had lots of clapotis as well. So it was just a massively confused sea. And it sort of came up really, really quickly. You know, when you make a decision to go for it, you go, oh, we just... And then eventually you're there and you're, like, you're totally committed. Like, you can't turn around. You've got to just keep going and just, just hope it doesn't get any worse. 
because you know that's that's the, that's the only option. So you almost get to this place like I suppose in certain situations where you just go, I can't, I just can't afford to lose it here. Same in climbing, I suppose, when you get to some something that's really tricky and dangerous, or any time you're sort of exposed. Sometimes, sometimes you just got to you just got to knuckle down and go. You know, I just can't afford to lose it, and that was one of those times really. What did you find most unexpected about that trip? What did I find most unexpected about that trip? Well, we had we had another. <laughs> whenever we whenever he says to you, "There's no bears," you know, like so, uh, I always take it with a pinch of salt now because uh, on that trip again, we ended up in a. You know, we, we stopped at one settlement of about uh, fifty people, and it, there was this. this it, it was one of somebody from Nuke, which is the sort of capital down there to do a little bit of work on one of the helicopter pads and she was she was sort of um she was isolated from the village and when, when she saw us she was like oh great someone could talk to her because nobody talks to me here and she fed us and so my well my mate liam was up i think he went to the toilet and i said oh this is really nice and me what's this i think i've had it before and she went oh it's a polar bear i went oh where do you get this from she goes oh we shot it in the village about two days ago and i went so they told me there's no polar bears down here because we hadn't got hadn't got a gun on this point, she goes, "Oh yeah, yeah, they do come down sometimes." So when he, when he came back down again, um, I thought, you know what, I just won't tell him because <laughs> <laughs> I said there's no point in, in both of us like hearing and think any noises at night and think it's going to be you know another bear coming to the tent. So I just went, I didn't tell him, I, and I didn't tell him until we we had a beer in our hand at the end of the trip. Um, so so. <laughs> So uh, I said it was only me who was worrying on that one. But um, yeah, I just think, uh, again, I'm just impressed with that trip just because it feels very much like a Norwegian sort of fuel system there. Very steep cliffs coming out of the ocean, long stretches of, of fjord and coastline. And so I suppose going around Cape Fell was a little bit different to the rest of the trip. Once we actually did that, by four, day five, we'd, we'd done the crux and then it was... It felt very much like a sort of Scandinavian type landscape. Obviously, just the light was a bit more, I suppose, intense down there as well. But yeah, yeah. and the climbing was really good. So, you know, which is always a nice, good good quality rock. Um, we, we had a really good time, actually. Welcome back to Ollie in just a minute. Right now, we have the final of our four secret questions in celebration of our one-year anniversary. So since Ali's talking about bears, let's have a bear-related question. And this episode's question is, what did the bear want from Sarah and Justine? Once again, what did the bear want from Sarah and Justine? Get your answer to this question to me at john at paddlingtheblue.com by February 28, 2021, and we'll announce the winners on our March 15, 2021 show. So right now, let's get back to our conversation with Ollie Sanders. So what would you recommend to someone who's planning a trip to Greenland? Oh, uh, well, as a first trip, you mean? Um, Some... Either uh, their first time, let's say. Yeah, well, um, actually, the Cape Farewell area is a good area to go because you, you can actually do a really nice trip where you're not forced to go around Cape Farewell. <laughs> not... Some of the kayakers I know have just done the fjord systems and they can... You can link that and then you can be reasonably sheltered. And Masalak on the East Coast is quite easy to get to in terms of, you know, you can go direct flights from Iceland and from Copenhagen, I think. And, and it's just very accessible in terms of it's a short flight. And once you're there, it's there's loads of islands and um, fjord systems you can go in. Uh, and again, it's, I think there's a few, quite a few companies run commercial trips from there because it's, 
because it is so accessible and they can choose to go in reasonably sheltered waters. And then I suppose out of Illusut, which is um, a World Heritage Site, which is on the west coast, is also very good because you see a lot of whales. The whale migration goes through there. So if, you wanna, if you're into all that side of it, then that's a fantastic place. It's a little bit flat for my liking, but you do get the wildlife. So it depends, I suppose it depends what you want. But I mean, my favourite place is, is up in Arvik, which is in the northwest out of there, because I think it's just unbelievable scenery. And you've got the ice cap, which is really predominant. But the wildlife's not so good, but for climbing objectives and just really stunning scenery, I've been there three times now. It's, I think it's my, it's it's my favourite place. So over the past 16 years or so that you've been visiting Greenland, how has the area changed? Quite a lot of people ask me that. I think they ask me that because they want to know, is there more or less ice than, than you've noticed over the years? You know, like, is global warming affecting it? Um, but because I go to so many different areas over the years, I suppose I haven't been to the same area on a red... Well, I suppose I've been to northwest regularly. It's hard for me to say, really. I, I think there's definitely a little bit more tourism now. So I think in some of the places that were really isolated... Sometimes you get the big cruise ships coming in. So there's the Hurtigruten ferry from Norway does a, does trips around to these sort of isolated little communities, whereas before they never used to go in. But I suppose because maybe the sea ice is receding a little bit more, they can get in. And I don't know what the locals think of that. They're interesting people. I mean, if you can imagine that, you know, like suddenly a, a boat arrives and, you know, 400, 500 people get off over the space of 24 hours and you're like a, you're like a, an animal in a zoo. They all come around with big lenses and start taking photographs. It's not surprising they don't feel very very uh, amiable to these sort of people. Uh, so, But I've always found that they're great, actually. They, they, they're quite reserved, quite quietly spoken, but they definitely, the places I've been back to, they've, they've remembered who you've been and they've, they've always sort of engaged a little bit more with you, especially if there's a, occasionally there's a, a dance night then it goes a bit wild and crazy. But um, I've had a great time out there. So, like I said, I think it's, it's, it is getting more commercial because the world's opening up, isn't it? Um, and, and, uh, and them as a people, they've been affected as much as anybody else by, you know, the, the social media that have, the access to the sort of internet, you know, uh, the traditional ways of kayaking and hunting are sort of have gone, really. They, not many people do it. Um, and they're dependent, really, I suppose, on... Well, they were dependent on the Danish government before that, but um, even though they've got self-rule now, you know, their way of life's completely changed to what it was 20 years ago, really. So that's the main change I think I'm seeing. So what's one question that you never get asked about Greenland? Probably people don't want to know if there's any polar bears there. They tend to, whenever you talk about that, they tend to shut off. Because, uh, yeah, it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because... Um, you know, when you go into these wild places, then you've you know you've got to be prepared to take precautions, and some people don't like the idea of that. Especially you know when these, the Brits, we're not very good you know with firearms anyway. We don't really we're not really um, exposed to that very much. But um, you know I just try and be realistic. I so, say, look, if you want to go, you're going to these places, then you've got to accept the fact that you need to protect yourself. And if you're not prepared to do that, then you need to think about whether you want to want to want to want to go and expose yourself to that sort of risk really. But um, should I think probably that's the main question so what's been your most committing trip uh, to Greenland probably um, yeah probably Liverpool and just because 
because of everything that happened. And uh, we felt very isolated on that North Coast, very alone. And, you, you know, you just got to look after yourself. Uh, luckily, you know, everybody, all the guys um, I've been away with, all the people I've been away with have been good company. You know, that's the key to it, isn't it? You've got to, you know, sort of, I suppose I have sort of like, and I wouldn't say they're rules, but three guidelines I go by. One is that we come back alive. <laughs> uh, the second is that, um, <laughs> that we have a good time. Uh, and the third is we come back and we're still good. We're all still good friends. I've, uh, luckily, I've been lucky that the people I've gone away with, chosen or been lucky with, uh, have all we've all met those criteria, really. And uh, uh, at the bottom line is it, you know, it should be an enjoyable trip. There's an objective that you that you have with anything, whether it's a mountain you want to get up or a trip you want to do. And, and it's good to be focused on that objective, that's for sure. It's about the it's about the journey. It's not about the destination at the end of the day, I think. It's about the relationship you have with the people you go with, the relationship you have with the place that you're in and the relationship you have with indigenous people that you that you go and if you don't sort of engage in all those three, I think you you miss out on it all. And if you can try and leave the trappings as much as you can at home, I think you end up having a, a more rewarding trip. Yeah, I suppose people often, you know, when you do lectures, people sort of are quite surprised that you don't really have a lot of backup. Um, but I suppose I come from that generation before mobile phones, you know, before real internet, where we didn't have that ability to make a phone call and it'd be sort of a, a helicopter hovering above our head over the next few hours. Is I suppose I've always left all that at home and tried to avoid just taking the absolute bare minimum. Um, and, and everybody's got to buy into that, that's for sure. Uh, and I'm quite happy that if somebody here you know, has family commitments at home and wants to make sure they've got a sat phone, then, then I'm happy. But luckily, everybody's sort of uh, gone with it. So you could say it's foolhardy because, you know, that if it does go wrong, then, you, but you've, then you've got to live off your wits. You've got to make really good decisions, I suppose. You can be unlucky. But, um, you know, I think you're in, you just end up more in tune with the environment and hopefully making... Maybe I've just been lucky, but hopefully making good decisions that mean you come back in one piece. I think that that's excellent advice from a, an expedition standpoint. And you know, I've had other discussions with other folks on the show here, and we've talked about sometimes expeditions get planned so detailed, and we end up relying so much on, on gear that it, it takes the adventure out of the expedition. Go with just what you need, and then, uh, you know, the rest you'll make up as you go along. You're going to have successes and failures it doesn't really matter does it i mean you know when you talk about the world of high altitude mountaineering you know i've had very few successes there because everything's against you but yeah i mean which makes the, the successes even sweeter when you actually you're going to do it but just just make sure you know that the main goal is that you know you look after each other you know nothing's worth losing somebody for i mean things happen you get they're out of your control but generally you know you're looking after each other and you want to, don't want to be somebody whose main aim is the goal rather than the team. It's always going to be about a team adventure, having a good time, um, and coming back and telling some good stories. Yeah, stay alive, have fun, still be friends at the end. All good advice. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, obviously you have to plan appropriately for that, but uh, you know, plan so much that you can make sure that those things happen. But don't plan so much that you take the adventure out of the adventure. There's so many things that can that can throw that you know if you if if you if you've got a very rigid plan there's so many things that can throw that into turmoil you've just got to be flexible you know you can't the mountains always be there the sea will always be there you just got to make sure you work with the nature you've got and the environment you've got at the time. 
You had mentioned Scandinavia earlier, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, you have recently um, rewritten or authored the Lofoten Guidebook. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I sort of co-authored it with with a guy called Jan Engstad. I mean, it's uh, he's the local guy on the ground. So I suppose it's. I ended up going to Lofoten years ago on a bit of a crazy trip to try and paddle across uh, the North Sea. I thought it was always impressed me. I thought. Um, I thought I'd go back and I started going back to explore and then I started going back and running commercial trips um, and then I went you know and I started going there and climbing and paddling um, and sort of became friends with Jan over the years and I sort of came up with an idea why don't you why don't we do a guidebook for this area and uh, I suppose it took you know like most of these projects it takes a long time to do to get the right photos you know I'm going there 20 years really it's a special place, a very special place, actually. You know, amazing scenery. Um, you know, again, you get 24 hours of daylight. You've got, you know, some really big crossings you can do as well. So out to the remote islands uh, and the rock climbing is superb. So I haven't been back for, for the last few years. But, you know, it's a place I'll, I'll always hopefully, you know, go back again to. So in addition to alpinism and climbing, you have a, a pretty interesting history in the entertainment business. Uh, care to share any, any stories from that world? <laughs> I thought that might come up. Um, <laughs> well, I, yeah, needless to say, John, I, I was involved in the rock and roll business when it was still a little bit rock and roll, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so um, there's uh, there's lots of stories uh, from that Um can I share with you that I won't, you know, won't be liable for? <laughs> um, I mean, I suppose the excesses of, of the rock and roll uh, world, because I, I ended up as a as a, an arena rigger, which means you know I used to put all the um, all the all the or hang all the motors and the and the, and the structure that they used to hang the lights and the sound on. And I remember it was a pretty crazy crazy world. But you know, to give you an example, I think we were doing a the first tour I did was a Genesis tour in '86. Uh, and the um, production manager was a guy called Morris Lider or Mo Lider. He was an ex-rodeo um, champion. Uh, and he used to drive around with, with his cowboy hat on a forklift. Uh, he decided that we were going to do Giant Stadium, New York, and to Paris, Bercy, which is a, a venue there, back-to-back, -back, which means, you know, you tear down the show one night and you're doing the show the next night in the other place. It's never been done before. So... So we were going to work out how he was going to do this. But anyway, so he just ended up, uh, as we were tearing down the, the, the show uh, at Giant Stadium, we were loading onto uh, trucks, which were going off to JFK, to be loaded onto 747 cargo planes, flying straight out. And then the crew, they chartered Concorde for us and the band. Uh, and we flew Concorde from JFK to Charles de Gaulle. Uh, all I can say is that there was um, lots of substances being done on that plane to keep people awake. <laughs> and I remember as we were coming in, flying into Charles de Gaulle, the, the air, because basically we chart the whole plane, the air, the air students were trying to get people to sit down and people still going and using the, the toilets to, uh, to make sure they were kept awake. So, And then we pretty much went straight from the airport and started putting the show up. So just absolutely crazy. So tell us a little bit about your company, Rock and Sea Adventures. I mean, the word company is quite grandiose, isn't it, for a one-man band, really? So, yeah, no, I, as a lot of freelancers, you know, the website doesn't necessarily reflect the size of the organisation. I run my own stuff for, out of that. We we had a sort of a productions company. Again, that sounds very grand. We produced some sort of instructional DVDs over the years on sea kayaking, 
climbing expedition and all that sort of thing. So that links into the website. And I just, you know, I'm at the age now where I just do nice bits of work. I still work freelance for other people. But I think it's the variation. I can do a bit of winter climbing. I can do a bit of sea kayaking, uh, rock climbing. I do some rope rescue stuff. So I have a sort of pretty much varied, um, you know, sort of itinerary, which means I never really get bored of one. I quite like the seasonal side of putting my sea kayak away and then getting involved in the winter and then get the sea kayak out again in May and then rock climbing gear and then going away on expedition. So it's uh, I've been very lucky, really. I've, I've had a, a nice variation in the sort of work I do. You know, um, And, you know, some people say it's not a real job, but, you know, you still got to look after people. That's right. So as far as, as, far as winter work, uh, what kind of winter work do you do uh, outdoor? Well, I used to uh, work in Scotland at about 30 seasons in Scotland. But my knees aren't up to that anymore. I can't, you know, bashing up onto the Ben Nevis. It's, uh, they're big days out. You've got to be really fit. And um, I think your body just... So I just tend to work in Wales now. I used to run ice climbing courses abroad as well. But now I just stick to sort of the winter hills in Wales. It's more of a... More walking work than... Male mountaineering work than, than, than proper climbing work now. But, but Scotland's probably just... Um, I'm a little bit too old for that now. Um, yeah, so I have a nice time around here, and it's and I'm back in my own bed every night. So, how can listeners reach you, Ali? How can listeners reach you? Uh, well, I mean, the uh, if they go on the website, I think there's a contact there. The website's got actually, if you access the website, there's actually loads of instructional de- uh, clips in there. So basically, all the DVDs we did over the years. There's one on rough water handling, one on sea kayak safety, one on self-rescue for climbers and one on expedition skills they're all on there they're all free, you know access and they're free for people to use so i sort of put them out there a little while ago so as resources for people to use if they're coaching or teaching because we sort of we sold the dvds out so it was why don't we just make these accessible for people now and then the stuff i i run is on there sort of semi-retired some people might say i get some nice work and I pick and choose, but uh, the course dates are on there as well. But, you know, people can, if they come in small groups, they can book us. Um, if they've got a specific bespoke sort of thing they want to do, they can get hold of us and do that as well. So, yeah, probably the best way is through the website. All right, and that's rockandseaadventures.co.uk, yeah. and, and spelled out A-N-D, and uh, rockandseaproductions.com, is that correct? That's right, yeah. There's a link, I think, to both sites. Uh, and you can buy the book on online, but like I say, the DVDs are on there. But to be honest, you can access all the most of the clips now for free on by accessing the video clips on the main site. All right. Well, I'll make sure that I include notes or links to those sites in the show notes and uh, where people can get in touch with you and maybe uh, take advantage of some of those private programs that you run and and also pick up some of the videos and and the guidebook. Well, thank you again, Ali. This has been great. And uh, one final question that I always ask our guests is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? I think probably Nigel Dennis would be a good choice. He's an expeditioner after my own heart, done lots of pretty impressive trips. He's been paddling a long time. He did, you know, some of the, one of the uh, first circumnavigation of the UK um, when boats were still very primitive. And of course, he's also designed manufactured built uh, sea kayaks and probably run one of the first big sea, sea kayaking symposiums in Anglesey that's still going so you know he's got a he's got a pretty good pedigree 
All right. Yeah, I think uh, 38 years for the Angle CSC Kayak Symposium, if I'm not mistaken. That's quite a record. Yeah, yeah. So, People well, I will. The world have been introduced to Anglesey. <laughs> well, I will definitely reach out to uh, to Nigel, and we'll work on getting him on the show. So again, Ali, thank you very much for joining me today. I really appreciate uh, you. I appreciate your time, and thank you very much for spending the afternoon with us. That's great. No problem, John. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Greenland certainly does sound like a place of incredible beauty, from the remote icy landscapes to its warm people. My favorite quote from this episode was, it's about the relationship you have with the people you go with, the relationship you have with the place you're in, and the relationship you have with the indigenous people you interact with, something that every traveler should always keep in mind. Ollie's a pretty humble guy, and while this podcast focuses primarily on paddling, he's quite accomplished as a mountaineer and has done some pretty impressive mountaineering expeditions around the world. You'll find links in the show notes to Ollie's website, and be sure to check out the short list of his accomplishments there. Um, it's just a short list. There's more as well. We are still celebrating our upcoming one-year anniversary, and we've got prizes. So this is the last of the four episodes with questions for you to answer to get in on our drawing. So I hope you're listening closely for this episode's question. If you've got the answer, send it to me at john at paddlingtheblue.com, along with your name, mailing address, and email address. Each correct answer goes into a random drawing for $100 toward the level 6 gear of your choice and cool hoodies and t-shirts and hats from P&H Custom Sea Kayaks and Warner Paddles. Reminder, you've got until February 28th, 2021 to get your answer to me, and that's the answer to any of the four questions or all of the four questions. We'll announce the winners on our March 15, 2021 show. And remember, if you missed any of those previous episodes, go back and listen for that episode's question. Get those to me as well. Each correct answer is one entry to the drawing. Our next guest is Jorgen Vanderpol, also known as Kayak Cobber. Jorgen has traveled the world by kayak and more recently on foot because of a challenging disease that's taking away his sight. Join us to hear Kayak Cobber's message of perseverance and his fun adventure paddling 4,400 kilometers from Holland to Moldova. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.